We're in a series of messages called Saturate, and we are going through the book of Acts together in the New Testament. It's kind of the story of the birth of the church and, and how that came to be uh, in all of its uh, beauty and all of its uh, hardships. And today, particularly, we're looking at one of the, the tougher texts in the book of Acts in the New Testament. Uh, so we'll get into that in just a few minutes. But the reason why we call this series Saturate is we just see the gospel uh, going deep into people's lives and also wide. And, and as I study the scriptures, uh, I see that God uh, wants to change our hearts, but then also, also wants to see us help advance his kingdom. So it's always a deep and a wide movement of the gospel. Victor Lustig, name ring a bell to anyone. Victor Lustig, uh, late 1800s, uh, lived in Austria. Uh, one of the best criminal imposters of all time, if I could say that. I don't know if I could say that or not. Uh, a really good imposter, okay? Listen to a little bit of this guy's resume of his imposterity. Uh, so it all started whenever he began to sell money-making machines to these wealthy citizens that uh, got on a cruise ship. Uh, he sells these things on the cruise ship. After they get off the cruise ship, they realize they've been sold a bill of goods that they can't actually print money. He's making off like a bandit. They've been bamboozled. Then it goes on to my favorite thing that he did. Uh, this joker sold the Eiffel Tower. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, he pretended to be a, 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 a government worker, and he read this book about uh, how the Eiffel Tower was only supposed to last about 20 years, and so he began to bid out the Eiffel Tower to scrap metal workers, and he sold the Eiffel Tower to the highest bidder. I can't make this stuff up. And then he says, you know what, I'm going to take my enterprise to the United States, because I hear they've got a lot of money there. And then he runs into a guy named Al Capone. Now, he bamboozles Al Capone, but guess what he does? He realizes how lethal this man is, and he returns his money to him. He dies a sad life in Alcatraz. Imposterity, it's a part of our culture. It's a part of our lives. Uh, all of us, uh, if we were honest, are imposters to some degree. We put on a mask about some part of our life, uh, and we would rather people not know about that part of our life. We'd rather God not know about that part of our life. We're all fraudulent in some degree. And the Bible happens to talk a lot about imposters. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 32. You can stand in honor of God and, and His Word as we read it here together. We're going to start in verse 32. And we're going to work our way all the way through Acts chapter 5. Verse 11. What you're going to notice here is there's kind of two, there's two examples of, of kind of how people treat their material possessions and the place that it has in their hearts. So we're going to talk about both of those. So Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32, here we go. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving the testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, staggering. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the feet of the apostles, and it was distributed to each 
as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, he got a, he got a nickname there, uh, which means a son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the feet of the apostles. Chapter 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself a part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young man rose and wrapped him up and, and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, uh, what, a, what a sobering text that you've given us this morning. What a, uh, what a deep word, what a heavy word you've given us. Uh, Lord, this is in your word for a reason. Uh, so Father, I pray that uh, any, any desire or agenda that I have as your servant this morning would just be kind of pushed aside and that your Holy Spirit would have his way with your word this morning as he brings it to life in our eyes. So Father, I pray for those that, that maybe uh, really are struggling uh, through uh, maybe similar situations right now that maybe uh, have just, the Spirit has brought to mind some deceit and, and they're wondering what, what does it look like to walk out of that. I pray for those that maybe are unaware of things in their life that, uh, <clears throat> that are going on that you want to bring to light. I pray that you give us grace to handle those this morning. And I pray that you would give us hope in Jesus, that we'd walk out encouraged, that Jesus is more than enough to handle our sin. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So as you can tell, I'm going to spend most of our time this morning uh, looking at that part of the story from Ananias and Sapphira, but I, wanted to I don't want to gloss over too quickly uh, the first five verses at the end of uh, chapter 4 here. So we're going to look at verses 32 through 37, and kind of the first part of the sermon is this, the freedom that we experience in forgiveness. The absolute freedom that we get to experience. So, in the book of Acts here, we've got this snapshot of the life of the church for the second time. In Acts, the end of Acts 2, we saw it. They were together. They had everything in common. Nothing belonged to them. They were having this beautiful kind of fairy tale life. We catch another glimpse of that here in Acts chapter 4. And, and if, you're, if you're new with this, I'll catch up on the context of where we're at. Uh, the Spirit has fallen. Um, the, the church has been birthed. Um, they speak in different tongues. There's unity that the church has brought together. They begin to, uh, to live out this identity together in community with one another. Um, 
they, there's evidence of that power because a lame man, a lame beggar is healed by Peter and John. Well, the, the officials, the Jewish officials do not like what's happening because they see a power that they can't control. And so what do they do? The only thing they know to do, arrest him. They try to shut this thing down. Peter and John say, hey, look, whether it's right in the sight of God or not to, to preach the gospel, you've got to decide, but we've got to obey God on this. I mean, after all we've seen him do, we've got to obey him. So they release them. Uh, the text we looked at last week was, was when they were released, they, they gathered together, and they didn't, they didn't cower in fear. They didn't say, hey, how can we get out of Jerusalem as quickly as possible? But they prayed that God would give them boldness. In the, in the midst of adversity, they prayed that God would give them boldness. And this is where we pick up today with the second snapshot of the life of the church. I don't know how much time has passed, but a little bit of time has passed. And we've seen that even in the church, even though it looks all good, there's some, there's, some, there's some things inside the church that aren't so pretty. And if you've been around the church for any length of time, we see those things today as well. And so let's talk first about the freedom of forgiveness that these guys experience. What I see in Acts chapter 4 that, that, that um, sticks out to me, the end of it, is, is not, you know, some people say, hey, is God calling us to this Christian, communal, kind of cultish living? No, he's not. He's not calling us to that because they, they all keep their own possessions. But, but it's as if Jesus was treasured to such a degree that he was the only possession that mattered. That's what we see happening in Acts chapter 4. It's like he was the only possession that actually mattered. And so everything else was up for grabs. God could use whatever he wanted to uh, in the midst of that community to bless it. So we see the disciples, they come and they they trust the leaders of their church with their money to care for the poor. So we see them come and lay the, the proceeds at the feet uh, of, of, the, of the elders of the church, the apostles of the church. They trust them. And I meet, I meet lots of folks that, that, um, that really don't trust the church that they're at. I'm not, I'm not speaking specifically of anyone at New City Church, but in, in general, I just see a lot of distrust with churches and funds. Uh, but we see here that there was just such this beauty that they trusted the church to handle and care for the poor. And that's kind of the model that's laid out there. That's why in Acts chapter 6 we look at this whole idea of deacons. These folks that are, that are, that are uh, officers in the church to be able to care for the poor in the church. There's a whole position in the life of the church for that. So they trust uh, the church with their possessions to care for the poor and it's also on, on the church responsibility side of it it's a priority of the church it's a priority of the church so you know as a church plant that meets in a school we could easily say hey we'll get to that on down the road hey there'll be a time when we can care for the poor in our community but you know what will happen our consumeristic tendencies will just eat away at us and we'll want more and more and more stuff more and more and more staff more and more and more buildings and the poor will be pushed to the side. Church, there's a reason why New City Church meets in the Discovery High School cluster in downtown Lawrenceville. It's because this is where the poor in our community, for the most part, reside. In downtown Lawrenceville. And if we want to reach a city, I once heard Randy Neighbors, a guy, he's one of those guys that every time I talk to them, Every time I talk to him, he wrecks my ministry plan, okay? I've got this great idea. I'm going, hey, Randy, what do you think about this? And he just kind of blows it up with dynamite every time. I've met with him for lunch three times. He does it every single time. He said, if you want to reach the poor, plant a church where they can come to you. So here we are in downtown Lawrenceville. 
Here we are, we, we're, we're drawing in people from the outskirts of Lawrenceville, from Snellville, from Swanee, kind of coming in all to this center of Lawrenceville where the poor live. And we've got a responsibility. And so our church is beginning to engage in, in, in a lot of different ministry here. And we want to see more and more of it happen. But that's why we're in downtown Lawrenceville. That's why we've had to say no to buildings that have opened up in other parts of the community because we feel such a conviction to stay here. We believe that Jesus loves the folks in our community. I mean, ask any of the eight mentors that we have that come and mentor students in the school. Ask any of them. When they sit across the table and they mentor these students, they just see such brokenness. But in the same, in the same sense, because we carry around the, the life of Jesus in us, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, we have such great hope that we bring with us. And there's much that we can learn, church, from the poor. There's much that we can learn. We can learn a lot about faith. We can learn a lot about what it looks like to follow Jesus in everyday life. And so we want to see socioeconomic differences kind of collide. That's why we're in Lawrenceville. That's one of the big reasons. Um, so if you're looking for a homogenous kind of culture in a church, that's not really what we had in mind for New City. But that's the reason why we think Jesus has called us here. So the priority of the church for the poor is, is first the poor in our own community, our own church. Then the, the global poor, we see in 2 Corinthians, I think it's 8, uh, where there, a collection is taken up for the poor in Jerusalem. And they send this money back. So that's, that's the reason why we're partnered up in Honduras. That's why we're taking a trip here pretty soon. That's why we're planting a church in Honduras. I would love to, for New City Church, a church of you know just over 100 people, to be able to fully sponsor and fund this church plant in La Ceiba, Honduras. The pastor there, if you don't know him, you're going to get to know him because my heart is that he would be in here preaching to us within the next year or so. This is Pastor Vicente. Pastor Vicente probably has an elementary education. He's being trained by missionaries in La Ceiba uh, on how to be a pastor. And here he is pastoring a church in his own community. Guys, this is the front porch of his house. That's where the church is. That's where they gather. Uh, right now, there's a medical clinic going on, and so, so some folks have come in to give some care, and they meet at Vicente's house. Vicente is one of the most joyful men that I've ever met in my life, and I, I hope that you get to meet him. I hope that you get to experience the joy that comes with knowing a brother that lives in a different place, in a different country, in a different context with the same joy that you and I get to experience in Jesus. This idea of ownership this Western idea of ownership uh, that, uh, that kind of could be maybe the biggest idol that we have in, in the West. Um, I have friends that minister in inner city Atlanta, and he says one of the greatest open doors to the gospel for him is to be needy among his neighbors. To actually need his neighbors. To actually look them in the eyes and say, I need you. I'm not saying drop a load of cash from me. What I'm saying is I need you as a neighbor. It's not, we're not just closing the garage door and getting on with life. I need you as a neighbor. I need you in this community. And so instead of going and buying something that, that maybe he needs, he'll often go and he'll ask if he can borrow something from his neighbor. And you know what it does? It creates this dialogue. It creates this friendship between neighbors. While if the need wasn't there, how would they know each other? So what would it look like for us to reprogram a little bit on this idea in the suburbs of Atlanta on what it looks like 
to love the poor well and to be loved well by the poor. What would it look like for a New City Church to be able to experience this? And what we see in Acts chapter 4 that blows me away is this is the evidence of the gospel received. It's not, these guys didn't have to give away everything to earn approval from God. It was like Jesus was everything to them, so everything else was, was fair game to be used for his kingdom. What would that look like for us? So that's kind of one of the examples that we get on what it looks like to live as a church. And we learn that caring for one another is costly. Living in the community of God together is costly. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, if you want to follow me, you've got to lay down your life. It's costly to care for one another well. And we're encouraged to participate in that uh, from Acts chapter 4. And then we get this, this kind of main character. One of these main characters of the book of Acts is introduced here. Uh, a fellow by the name of Joseph that the apostles coined with the name Barnabas. Now, how would you like to have the name Barnabas? Which, and what it means is a son of encouragement. I, I picture Barnabas as the kind of guy that every time you're around him, you're just kicked up a couple notches. You just, you're just encouraged a little bit more about how you're doing in Christ and, and how things are going in life. That was kind of the, the character that this guy had. And we're going to see him uh, many more times in the book of Acts as a companion of the Apostle Paul and planting churches throughout the world. So everyone say hi to Barnabas. Hi, Barnabas. Now we move on to, to kind of a little bit more of the meat of the sermon of where I want to spend and, and sink, sink down our roots today. Um, so that's one view that we have there. The second view of kind of how we relate to these material goods comes from one of the, the grimmest pictures in the New Testament uh, about sin, uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So this is what I've called, this is the price of pretending. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So what you notice here in Acts 5 is that if you look on the, the, the Acts chapter 4 side of it, you look at Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 13, you notice that there's all this community that's happening, all of this loving relationship that's happening. So this is kind of a parenthetical text here. So it's kind of in parentheses. So all of this great stuff is happening. You know, Luke writes to us and tells us, but I do got to tell you about some of the, the underbelly of what's going on in the church too, just so you don't get your hopes too high of, for, you know, that sin has been eradicated in our community. So he tells us the story about this couple that was a part of the church. These weren't outsiders. These guys were a part of the church. They were a couple in the church. And one of the things that strikes me as I read this, and we've, we've kind of looked at it, is that as it says that they, they kept back some for themselves. Now that word kept back is a, is, a, is a word for us to remember, a phrase for us to remember. And it literally, if we translate it into the English, would be more along the lines of embezzlement. So they embezzled this money for themselves. Now, now uh, Luke makes it real clear here that what happened was is no one was forcing them to give the money. No one was forcing them. They had, they had decided that they wanted to give it all, but they just wanted to pretend like they gave it all and keep back some from themselves. So the problem, church, was not with the generosity. The problem was not with the money. The problem was with the heart. The deceiving heart was the problem in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. That was the issue that was going on. And what do the Scriptures say about their heart? It says that Satan had filled their heart to lie to God, to lie to the Holy Spirit. The enemy was tempting them. They didn't really treasure Jesus. They just wanted to look like they treasured Jesus. So in 5, 1 and 2, we see, hey, 
His to give, not a problem. Give it, keep it, up to you. You can be a part of the church. Everything's all good. Uh, evidently, in verses 3 through 6, somewhere there's, we're missing a little bit of information, but evidently they said they wanted to give extravagantly. But they deceived the church. They lie to God. They keep some from themselves. And, and it wasn't this you know, thing that, you know, in the garden we see kind of Adam blame shift to Eve. Uh, you know, it was her idea. She handed me the fruit. Well, it wasn't like that with Ananias and Sapphira. It was, they, had, they contrived this idea together. They had made this plan. Hey, we're going to rip God off. That's what we're going to do. We're going to say that we're going to give this. We're only going to keep some of it for ourselves because we don't really believe in what's happening. We want to keep some with ourselves. They conspire together. They say, we want to live a double life. That's what we want. And my question is, why did they give anything? Why didn't they just keep it all for themselves? I have to imagine that God called them to give. You know, kind of like the rich young ruler. Uh, you know, he has this encounter with Jesus. And Jesus, Jesus always puts his finger on our idol, doesn't he? He always puts his finger right there and he presses and it hurts. And he did it to the rich man. He said, hey, you want to follow me? You've got to sell everything that you have. And then you can follow me. Because that was the idol. That was it. He's kind of putting his finger there. And so they didn't want to give. They didn't want to give up their whole life, just a part of it. And so we see that the problem is with the deceit that happens here. That they've grieved, they've quenched the Holy Spirit, they've lied to God, and judgment ensues. That's troubling to us. So here's what I want to do now. I want to transition. I want to give you four takeaways that I kind of have been thinking on this week uh, that come from this story that will apply to all of us. So the first one is this. We are surprised to see judgment. Are we not? It's shocking to us when we see God judge Ananias and Sapphira. We might think in our spirit, in our heart, and they just told a little white lie, God. I mean, you have to strike them dead. We're surprised to see God do what he says he's going to do. It's, it's like we live sometimes and we think that God isn't actually going to judge the world. And so we just kind of get on with our life, and we, we sin and we kind of cover it up and we wear a mask, and we think that we're hiding something from God. And we see all over the scriptures that we're not hiding anything from God. And so it's kind of this abrupt kind of transition from everything's great in the church to wow, this couple's dead because they lied to God. I think it's important for us to remember God is loving, but God is judge. And this is going to have this is going to be part of what happens to the world. The better approach for us, I think, would would instead of saying, Why did these guys have to die? It might be, why do we get to live? Maybe that's the better question that we ask. Why, God, why have you spared us? Why have you sent us your son? Why have you caused us to treasure Jesus? Because you put that desire in us. Why have you given us that opportunity? Why have you given us your grace? And we see that we're not as worthy as we think we are. We're not all of that in a bag of potato chips. We're not all that good. When we look at things that way, there's this parallel story in Joshua chapter 7. It's the same word is only used for, for kept back, kept back that we talked about, that, that, that embezzlement word, it's only used a few times in the Bible and in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there's this story with this guy named Achan. They have just 
defeated Jericho. The walls have come crumbling down. And, the, and, and God has made it very clear, do not take any of the spoils. Don't take anything there in Jericho. Let it be. Don't take any of it. And Achan decides that he doesn't trust God, and so he keeps a little bit back for himself. And what happens to Achan? You'll have to read Joshua chapter 7, but Achan gets stoned for his sin. And we, we hear that and we're like, that doesn't sound like God to me. God is judged. We are surprised when we see judgment in the Bible. We're surprised. And judgment is a reality for all of us. Uh, you know, I'm not a hellfire and brimstone preacher, but judgment is a large part of what God talks about in the Bible. His judgment against sin because He is so holy. So how do we bear the judgment of a holy God? How can we not be struck dead because of our deceit? Only in Christ do we find hope in judgment. Only in Christ. We're going to be looking at a few subtexts here from 1 John. And the first one is 1 John 4.10. This may be a familiar passage to you. It has this big $10 theological word, propitiation, that I really want to focus on this morning. 1 John 4.10 says this, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us. And how has He loved us? He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. Now we can't, there's not a better translation for that word propitiation. We said some, a couple weeks ago we said, hey, it's good for us to live in the mystery. Sometimes we don't fully grasp what a word is. You can't dumb this word down because there's not a better word for what happens in propitiation. So what is propitiation? What has Jesus actually done when God sent Him here? Well, Jesus has become a substitute for us. You see, when Jesus got on the cross, you and I deserved to be on the cross. When Jesus gets on the cross, He absorbs the Father's wrath against sin for all who would call upon His name. For all who would believe, He absorbs that wrath. So what do we see? We see God's character as being just. He's got to judge sin because He's holy. He's got to judge it. But we see His love in making a way for us on the cross. So we see it that there's a price to pretending. There's a price for living in sin. There's always a price. And I would propose that Christians pretend because they think that the price that Jesus paid was not enough. We think it's not enough. We think that we got to do something else, that he, somehow he's going to be ashamed of this and somehow he's not going to be able to handle this. And the cross was, you know, for that one sin, but not really for this. And so we pretend and we act like everything's okay when we're dying on the inside and we're living in deceit and hypocrisy and there's duplicity in our lives. Jesus can handle your sin. He can handle it. Jesus was punished for my sin. Like I just think about that and my heart just kind of sinks and it kind of swells at the same time because I think, God, why would you do that with your only son? Why would you do that for me? But on the other side of it, I see just how loving God is and how he made a way and how this was his plan from all eternity to make a way for you and me through Jesus. But it, Jesus, it's not that the cross sweeps the sin under the rug. We see that the cross covered way more of us than we ever could have imagined. 
when we see Jesus as the propitiation for us. And so, first thing, we are surprised to see judgment. Second thing is this. Pretending always seems like the better option in the moment. Pretending always seems like the better option in the moment. So I think about the garden. I think about the first temptation with Adam and Eve when they take the fruit that God tells them not to take. What if we just hit pause on that in the middle of the temptation? What if we just hit pause? What if we just stop the whole thing and we just said, hey, Adam and Eve, you have a choice right here. You don't have to walk down this road. What if we just hit pause on it? And what if they, what if they took another walk with God in the garden and they said, hey, God, we're really struggling with this temptation. We think you're holding something back from us. What if they would have done that? It wasn't God's plan, so that's not what happened. But what if that could have happened with Ananias and Sapphira? What if they would have stopped and identified, hey, there is a desire in me to keep back from God, to lie to God, to lie to the people that I'm in community with. This is, I think this is so pointed for us because what happened with Ananias and Sapphira was a threat against the community that the Holy Spirit had established with these people that were together and had everything in common. Deceit and hypocrisy is a threat against our community. So every time that we choose to live this duplicity of a life, what we're doing is we're tearing apart the church community, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. There's a part that we're keeping back. There's a part that we don't want others to know, and it is tearing us down. It's the reason why you, you, when, you're, when you're struggling with situations like this, you don't want to be around people. You want to isolate yourself. But the Scriptures say if we confess our sins to one another in the book of James, we'll be healed. So what's it look like for us to be in community where we can actually confess our sins, not just you know, kind of pretend sins, but real sins, and to be loved and be pointed back to Jesus who can handle our sin. What would that look like? You see, when we run, when we pretend, like I think one of two things are kind of going on in our minds when we run. The first one is, is fear. We fear that God can't handle our sin. We think, we think, hey man, this is too big for the cross. Like Jesus died so that he could kind of put me on a clean slate and now my, my job is to live for him. So we think that the cross isn't for our sanctification. Or the second thing is, is, is with pride, we, we, we think that we can get through it on our own. If I just muscle up through this, everything will be okay. So we continue to put the mask on. We continue to pretend. But both of these options are absolutely hopeless. I was recently reading a, a book uh, for some schooling that I'm doing uh, by a guy named Richard Lovelace. Uh, and it's called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And in it, he talks about this concept of, uh, of, of basically the Christian life is about uh, growing in an awareness of our sinfulness and an awareness of God's holiness at the same time. Later, a guy named Jack Miller put a diagram together for this. I want to share it with you right now. So basically... As time goes on, we come to Jesus, and, and when we're first converted, it's almost like we get a huge shot of spiritual anesthesia. And so we kind of we get a shot, and you know when you come out of the anesthesia, if you've had, ever had any dental work done or any surgery or anything like that, you're a little loopy when you come out of it, aren't you? And things kind of get clearer over time. Well, the longer that we walk with Jesus, the more clear our true condition actually gets, and God's true character actually becomes to us. 
See, we think we just need Jesus a little bit when we first come to Christ. But the truth is, as we walk with God, the gospel becomes bigger and bigger in our lives. We, it's like I, I get people that come to me all the time, they're like, dude, I feel like I'm a worse sinner than I've ever been. Shouldn't I be getting better? I get this question all of the time, and I'm like, oh, actually, just reality is just kind of setting in, man. You are messed up. But Jesus is that good. That's how, that's how big the gospel is in our lives. So the gospel, as we walk with God, the gospel should become more and more central to our lives. The cross grows because we see that we're actually more sinful than we thought we were and that God is more holy than we ever could have imagined that he is. But the temptation for us sometimes is to shrink that cross. And so what we do is we, we, we kind of think, hey man, I'm getting worse. i got to do something about this. Jesus can't handle this. And so we shrink the cross. And then there's this gap in between what we think Jesus did and what we've actually done. There's this gap between who we think Jesus, who we think we are and who God actually is. And we don't know what to do with it. So we panic on the inside and we begin to pretend and perform. We begin to pretend that we're not as bad as we actually were and that our sin isn't really that devastating to our lives. We begin to perform and think that we're actually a lot more like God than we'd ever care to, than we actually are. And so this gap, this gap in what we think the gospel is for us and what we actually need is our problem. 1 John 9, 10. 1 John 1, 9 and 10 says this. If, it's a conditional statement there. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what if we don't confess our sins? Is there forgiveness of sins? I mean, it doesn't really sound like, it sounds like confession is a huge part of that. That's why we had a confession this morning. Then he goes on to say this, if we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I would contend that when we pretend we are walking, there are areas of our life where we're walking in unforgiveness in. We have not stuck those things under the blood and let Jesus wash us clean. So there was, there was probably a part of Ananias and Sapphira that said, God, I want to give you this part of my life. But then there was this other part that was kind of hiding in the shadows where they said, you can have this part, but not this part. So Jesus was maybe Savior, but not Lord. And so they didn't stick it under the blood. They didn't confess the sin. And I don't know why they did that, but they did. And you and I struggle with the same thing. The gospel doesn't grow in our lives, so we begin to pretend and to perform. So the question that we ask ourselves is this, why am I so afraid of being found out? What is going on inside of me when I pretend about the condition of my heart that makes me want to hide and not confess my sin? What's going on inside of me? We begin to ask those diagnostic questions and ask the enemy to up, or ask the Lord to uproot the enemy's schemes in our lives. Why am I so afraid of being found out? Didn't Jesus die for the real me, not the future better version of me? We talk about that a lot. Jesus didn't come for the future better version for you, of you. He came for the real you. And because he came for the real you, there's hope for the real you. Even when you see signs that the real you still exists, even after you've come to Jesus, sin keeps creeping its head up. We keep sticking it under the blood and keep coming back to Jesus. Number three, there's two types of people in the church. 
And most of the time, we're unable to tell the difference. This is sobering. Ananias and Sapphira were a part of the community. Peter and John knew them. They knew them well. They knew their names. It's a big church at this time, you know? Five, ten thousand people, I don't know. They knew Ananias and Sapphira. They were part of the fellowship. They weren't outsiders. And until Jesus returns, the Scriptures tell us it's always going to be like this. There's going to be people in the church that actually follow and treasure Jesus. And there's going to be people in the church that don't. And we're not going to know the difference. It's part of His plan of redemption. This is why in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives this kingdom parable about the wheat and the tares. And, you know, the, the parable kind of goes like this, where they say, hey, well, should we uproot the tares? Should we uproot the weeds? And Jesus is like, no, because you're going to uproot some of the wheat in the process, so let the two grow together until judgment comes. Because here's the truth. You and I don't know when God is going to save someone, okay? We don't have that. We're not, we're not sovereign. And so the two grow together. So in our church, there's always going to be people that follow Jesus and that don't yet follow Jesus. And our prayer is that those that don't follow Jesus would follow Jesus, right? And we don't get to determine when that happens. 1 John 2, 19 and 20 says this, kind of gives evidence to this thing we're stating here. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Now, he's not talking about church shopping here, okay? It's not like, hey, man, they went over to Ephesus and checked out the church there. No, that's, that's not what's going on here. They've walked away from the church. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have knowledge. And so should this cause us to fear? Should this cause us to doubt our own salvation? Well, if we're walking with Jesus, our lives are under the blood, and we're seeking Him as the only hope in life and in death, we're following Him. We're, 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 we love Jesus. We treasure Him. We're Christians. But in New City Church, God's plan is that there's going to be people that follow Him and people that don't follow Him. And so what must our lives look like in light of that reality? What's our response we stay close to Jesus. You and I, we stay close to Jesus. We seek Him. We, we treasure Him in community. We ask His Spirit to continually reveal our sin to us and keep us in community, to keep us out of isolation. We speak and live the gospel every single day. I, in my, my history as a pastor, I have seen so many people that have been a part of the church their whole life and they haven't been Christians. They've just assumed that they're Christians. And then they hear the gospel. They hear it loud and clear. And maybe they heard it in the past, but the Holy Spirit has made their heart in tune with God's at that moment. And they realize, I really want to follow Jesus. I haven't been following him. That's going to happen at New City Church. That's going to be some of your stories. That is some of your story. And we invite others in community to let Jesus expose us. So we, we get into a community of people and we just lay ourselves open, not, not to this point where we're inappropriate in our sharing, but we, get, we fight for the gospel together in each other's lives. We, we're not afraid that there are parts of our lives that are less than pleasing to see. Because our only hope is that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. And so we confess our sins and we fight that fight together. Lastly, there's a right and a wrong way to deal with sin. There's a right and a wrong way to deal with sin. As I read the story about Ananias and Sapphira, it causes me to ask the question, do I even have any idea what God's holiness actually means? Do I have any idea how holy God actually is? 
David gives us a picture in Psalm 51 of what God's holiness is like in light of our sinfulness. This is after, now the context of this is after David, um, <laughs> King David, the one that Jesus came from, uh, the one that God covenanted with, a man after God's own heart, it's after he's had an affair. And to cover it up, he's killed another man, a good man, to cover up his sin. When God meets him in his sin, here's what he says, Psalm 51.4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, the last time I checked, David sinned against a lot of people. He sinned against his men. He sinned against Uriah, the man that he killed. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his family. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He sinned against a lot of people, but God is so holy and David is so sinful that it's like he only sinned against God. When you confess your sin, do you see the holiness of God? And are you troubled by the fact that you are so depraved and you need God's grace in your life? Because many times we are just content to make it right with the other person that we've sinned against and not even take it up with God. Because that's what we can see. We think, hey, I haven't sinned against God because I can't see God. We've sinned against God. Every sin is against, is against God because we are all alive because of His grace. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, every sin is against God. What would it look like, parents, for us to teach our kids how to repent? What would that look like? I mean, we've got all these little kids down the hall. All these little sinners back here, right? They're beautiful. Some of you are shaking your head. You're like, yeah, I know you sinners. Yeah, that's right. They're beautiful children. They're gifts of the Lord, as Psalm 127 says, arrows in our quiver, but they are sinners. What would it look like, church, to help teach our children the fact that they're sinners and that God is holy and to teach them how to repent? Well, it starts with mom and dad in the home, repenting before God with one another in front of your kids. It's a frequent conversation in our house, fortunately and unfortunately, I guess. We're sinners. Megan and I are sinners. We try our best to raise our kids well, um, and one of the best things we feel like we can give them is teaching them how to repent, because as Luther said, all of life is a life of repentance. So what does it look like to teach our kids not only to just repent again, to repent to one another, but to repent to God, to teach them in prayer, hey, you sinned against God. We need his forgiveness. You need your brother's forgiveness because you punched him in the face? You need God's forgiveness too. What would that look like? Everything could have gone down differently with Ananias and Sapphira if they didn't feel the need to pretend. Close uh, with this story. Um, I lived in Indiana before this for about four years, and I uh, was a student pastor there, and we had a uh, second year I was there, we said, hey, we're going to do a big party in uh, late October uh, <clears throat> at the bowling alley, because bowling is cool. And so we said, we're going to do this party at the bowling alley, and because it was in October, we said, hey, why not dress up at the party? This would be great. I mean, tell me one thing that's not better when you're dressed up in a costume, Right? I mean, dressing up in a costume is fun. So we said, okay, we're going to do a costume bowling party. This is going to be awesome. So we rented out the whole bowling alley. It was a lot of fun. In our preparations of getting ready, flash this uh, picture up here. Here's our, yeah, this is, uh, this is me and a couple of my buddies. We decided we were going to be Geico cavemen for Halloween. 
A lot of fun. So I'm in the middle of that good-looking fellow with the bushy eyebrows there. So we are dressed up in our Halloween costumes. We are putting on these glued-on beards, which was a terrible mistake, by the way. We're putting these things on, and we walk into... Uh, I, wa- I walk into my living room. We don't yet have any kids, but our friends do, and their daughter Lily is eating dinner at our table, and it took a while to glue those beards on, as you can imagine. And so we're, 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 sitting, we're sitting in there, and I walk in, and Lily knows me pretty well. She's like 10 months old at the time. She knows me pretty well, and she hears me talking. I'm like, hey, Lily, how you doing? And she's like, hey. Actually, she's not talking at all because she's 10 months old, but she's, she's like eating her food or whatever. She's fine. And uh, then she sees me. And she flips out and begins to scream bloody murder. And then she sees her dad, and it loses it even more, and then Pat comes in, and it's, it's a mess. And, I, and I, I think about that, and I think, why wouldn't she be afraid? I mean, why would she not be afraid of these strangely dressed men that sound so familiar? It was the mere appearance of someone who sounded so familiar yet looks so different that frightened her. And we, church, have become all too comfortable in our duplicity. What would it look like to take the mask off? Because little kids, you know, they, they're not as comfortable with the duplicity. You know, my wife, everyone else knew that I had a mask on, I had this fake beard on, right? Everybody else knew, they weren't frightened. Because they were comfortable with the fact that I would put a mask on for Halloween. It's just what you do. It's one of those things you do. It's fun. But you see this little 10-month-old girl, she didn't, she didn't know that yet. She wasn't used to putting on masks and things like that. We've become too comfortable with the duplicity of our life. Church, what if we were free to confess that we're two-faced? <laughs> what if we were free to confess that many times that we are in it for personal gain? What if we were free to confess that we are insecure and uncomfortable? What if we were free to lay our lives bare before the sovereign Lord of the universe and say that Jesus is enough? What if we stopped pretending? Do you believe that that's a possible step that you could take today in Christ? Because I do. Let's pray together.